podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you glorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Scott Kay, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our third installment of Under the Influence, where each month during our second season, myself, along with my special guest, will be taking an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. Our third film that we will be placing under the microscope is the movie that not only launched Tarantino into the stratosphere, but changed cinema forever. I'm talking about 1994's Pulp Fiction. The films that we will be reviewing this month are Robert Aldrich's noir crime film, Kiss Me Deadly, and Stanley Kubrick's dystopian crime film, A Clockwork Orange. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, making his fourth appearance, musician, composer, and host of Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims, Mr. Craig Cohen. Welcome back, Mr. Cohen, and may Tarantino be with you always. And you as well. Wow, this is my fourth appearance on your show? Fourth. You did the two Bible studies for Pulp Fiction right? back in April last year, and then recently in December you did Once Upon a Time, which is my fastest moving show. It has risen and listens faster than any other show right now. I I would like to think that I'm part of that, but I probably think it's the fact that it's his most recent movie. That could be it. You know, I don't know if there's a lot of people that actually, like, devoted whole podcasts to it. This is true. This is true. And it, it is most recent, so for sure. But uh, those were great episodes. And because you are, in a minute, we'll get into it, but you're special. I was still brand new, still wet behind the ears when I started this show last year. And so I was giving away guest questions, usually to the main guest. Well, you hadn't been a main guest yet, but since you were one of my early podcasters, I gave you your main questions back on your very first time. I don't do that for people in the Bible study. Yeah. So then you got your second group of questions. So you're going to be the first to get a third group of questions in a little bit. After oh, we, cool. Yes, and I sent them to you, but you're the first to get those questions. So oh, I'm nice. excited to hear your answers, and I don't know if anyone else will get to that point. Maybe, maybe Steve. Steve will be joining you shortly behind you mm-hmm. as far as getting to that point. But... Until that point, how have you been and any new music or podcast since we last spoke? It'll be three months for our listeners because it'll be December. We're hearing this in March. Mm -hmm. We did talk about a Jackrabbit Slims reboot, however, as things happen in life. One moment you put it down on paper and then life says, oh, you've got plans, do you? And it tells you to fuck yourself. And uh, you end up having a needle in your chest getting an adrenaline shot in. So what's new in the world of the Cohen? Not a heck of a whole lot. You know, I mean, regular life is sort of doing its thing. Um, I am looking sort of ahead to my my calendar, if you will, and um, looking like 
spring and summer are going to be quieter in terms of my work commitments. So that might be a good opportunity to sit down with a bunch of people, yourself included, that I want to get on Jackrabbit Slims before, you know, before that podcast is officially over. I've been hard at work trying to finish up my third full length instrumental album. And wow. um, it's it's been my biggest undertaking yet. A lot more instruments than I've used in the past. It's going to be my longest one. It's close to 30 minutes at this point, which oh, wow. is pretty big deal for me. So um, the one thing about it is I didn't set a, a deadline for myself. You know, my other projects, yeah. I always said, here's the date on the calendar. Whether it's done or not, it's going out. And deadlines are great, uh, especially for people like me. But for this one, I said, nobody's really, I'm not getting paid for it. So it's yeah. not like I have a contractual obligation to fulfill. Nobody's really chomping at the bit for new Craig Cohen music. Um, <laughs> You'll be surprised. You never know. <laughs> so I said, you know, let, let me see what happens when I just let myself allow this to develop you know, organically and see where it goes. So um, I've really been enjoying the process. And I think I've got another two months, maybe 100% it needs to be out in 2023. <laughs> uh, but other than that, um, yeah, I did some, so I did a couple of guest spots since the last time we talked over on the uh, last of the Action Heroes podcast network, which I'm a part of me and Seiko did a pretty cool episode on to live and die in LA, which I, I think oh, probably yeah. a lot of people listening to this show, um, if they've never seen it, they've heard about it. And yes. uh, it's a hundred percent a movie worth checking out. And uh, uh, me and Seiko both love that movie. And uh, we both feel it's sort of an un underappreciated classic masterpiece. It's William Freakin's third masterpiece. I mean, after the exorcist yeah. and uh, a young Willem Dafoe is in that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. He's the main, he's the main bad guy. So yeah, that's on the network feed. You can find that if you look, and it also gave me a chance to talk about what is one of the greatest rock and roll soundtracks of all time, too, with the Wang Chung, who did the score for that movie. I love when rock acts do things for movies. When I first got back into vinyl, you know, last year, um, it was prompted by my dad sending me a bunch of his old records because mm -hmm. my dad's in that point in his life where he's like, I'm getting rid of shit. I don't want <laughs> other people to get rid of shit when I'm not able to. So I'm preemptively doing that. So, you know, I hadn't really thought about vinyl in a long time. And my dad sent me uh, a bunch of his records and that kind of kickstarted things. And it's great because Vegas is a great city. There are so many uh, record stores here. Uh, long story short, one of the first things I got when I got uh, my record player was the Jimmy Page soundtrack to Death Wish 2. Oh, wow. Which is just... And I, I don't know, man, I love when, like I said, I love when rock stars get involved in making music for movies. And then even in my sort of universe, uh, the Stallone movie Nighthawks had that uh, Keith Emerson score. It's really cool. And I, I think there's a podcast out there sort of devoted to rock, you know, rock musicians and soundtracks. I'm pretty sure there is, because if, if there wasn't, I would have done it. <laughs> well, I'm excited for the summer, spring, because I would like to be on that podcast. Anyone who doesn't know, I have kind of used you as a, as a stepping off point of how I was going to start this podcast. I also pilfered you, Ryan Rebelkin, and Pat Fournes from your podcast to be on mine. And I've always tried to put you in, in the Pulp Fiction area and also along with Once Upon a Time, once I found out that was your second or now maybe favorite Tarantino film. So, of course, here you are on the Pulp Fiction podcast to talk about two films that were partial... Oh, partial influences, because if you look into Pulp Fiction, it is maybe the one film that has the most 
influences, maybe then up till maybe Kill Bill, that you can go through. And I actually think it has more than Kill Bill, because obviously Kill Bill is talking about a lot of the kung fu and stuff references. But as far as talking about references for one single film, Pulp Fiction, I mean, almost every other scene, there's something that he remembered, or maybe even Roger Avery, because people forget he was a co-writer on this, Mm -hmm. that they saw, that they enjoyed, that they put together in this film, that made it their own. I mean, it's completely their own, but I think we'll figure that out as we go through this. But if you just even Google influences for Pulp Fiction, the list is fucking quite long. It's a lengthy list. Now, I chose these two because there's a major one, and I think you already know why for Kiss Me Deadly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's huge. And I also chose a Clockwork Orange because my favorite, second favorite director is Stanley Kubrick. But also Clockwork Orange has been very, in my mind, influential in a couple of Tarantino's early films, his first two. Not only that, though, it's interesting because he also made some disparaging comments about it back in 2003, which I find very interesting because he clearly references this movie in a couple of his films, and it's just, you know, I mean, maybe it's Tarantino being Tarantino back then. You know, obviously that's 20 years ago, so, you know, I'm in my 40s. When you're 40, you know, maybe you say some shit when you think you're hot shit, you know, when you're coming off a of Kill Bill, you know, but... Uh, any feelings on what Tarantino said and, and our choices before we get into your questions? You know what? I'd have to go back and look. I didn't. I don't remember that him uh, him slamming uh, a Kubrick. Um, I do know he he loves talking shit about you know beloved directors. <laughs> he does. Um, I know he said you know disparaging things about I, I think Hitchcock. Yes, and. Uh, Francis Truffaut. But I don't remember the, what was the Kubrick? Um... She says, I always thought Kubrick was a hypocrite because his party line was, I'm not making a movie about violence. I'm making a movie against violence. And then if you look at A Clockwork Orange, it's heavy on violence. Now, again, much like I would say, of all, what I would say to Tarantino on that would be, much like people say things about his films, yeah. without knowing what Kubrick, you know, because obviously Kubrick's gone and had been dead four years when he made this comment, you know. So yeah. I, I don't know why the, the the attack, maybe, you know, he's getting his wings underneath him. You know, he did Pulp Fiction quietly yeah. with Jackie Brown. Now he's in Kill Bill territory, which, you know, that's the last step. He's now fully in orbit. So maybe he just felt like, hey, I'm going to take a pot shot at, at this guy because maybe he just didn't. You know, Tarantino's always called people out for being hypocrites. That is the one thing I will say about Tarantino. Yeah. He's always said that if you're, he doesn't like hypocrites, you know, and I don't know that he's been hypocritical, but it feels a little hypocritical in this point where he's making, you know, saying one thing about Kubrick, but yet clearly was an influence, like a heavy influence, which I think yeah. we're into. But you know what's interesting about that, Scott, is you can't make a clockwork orange without presenting it the way that Kubrick did. Yes. And Kubrick was not the type of filmmaker that, Got off on indulging himself. No, he's much like Tarantino, or I should say Tarantino. Like him. He never really wanders into the same pool twice. Yeah, I, I mean, but at the same time, he's he's making a film. He's he's not making something that you know ultimately is going to purely satisfy him. Yes. Although, um, you know, I mean, he you know he was famously you know a very very controlling director, <laughs> yes. but. You know, but he's servicing the material that he believes in. Uh, and I say he believes in because you can, you know, we're not talking about it, but you can look at The Shining and sort of see how, you know, Stephen King famously hated what, you know, Kubrick did with, with The Shining. But, you know, Kubrick had a very specific take on The Shining and he ran with it and he made a, a you know, a horror classic, you know. Yeah. And one that King has in later years admitted that is actually might be better than his his original writing now that he's had time for it to to settle in yeah 
Wow, man. Well, we're about to get some more wow, man stuff because now I'm excited. <laughs> it's time for the third series of guest questions. You are the first to get them. Oof, and it took okay. me a second because I, I was like, I had to come up with some good ones. Yeah. So some of them are just complete hypothetical, so I think they'll be fun. The first one, what kind of job is Mr. Purple and his crew pulling for Joe Cabot? Because if you remember in the some other guy in another jobs, Mr. Purple, you're Mr. Pink. Yeah. So hypothetically, what do you think Mr. Purple and his crew are pulling for Joe? And was it successful? Well, I'm assuming it's successful. I'm assuming the last job this crew did was the only one that went south. Yeah. You know what? I, I always thought that that was just a throwaway. You know, Joe wasn't digging, having his balls busted. So he just said it's a, it's a guy on another job. I don't think there actually was another job with Mr. Purple. But if I had to pon- pontificate on it, it seemed like they were in a very specific, you know, stealing stuff type of. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it it probably very similar to what these guys did in Reservoir Dogs, but successful. <laughs> <laughs> Theirs was a jewel ice that didn't go wrong and people yeah. weren't shot and killed at. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they're still waiting at their rendezvous point for Joe to show up. Like, I don't think he's coming. He was supposed to be there already. Where is he? Our second question. Do Max Cherry and Jackie Brown ever end up together? At the end of Jackie Brown, Max decides to take a phone call and not go with Jackie to Spain and watches her walk off. And then he almost immediately regrets it, as we see in the last shot of the film. So, do you think Max ever meets back up with Jackie Brown, or was that the end of their story right then and there? I think that was the the end of their story, and I think ultimately it was like one of those things that like you look at like important moments in your life that you know sort of change the direction you were heading. So I think it's you know one of those things where they never reconnected, but that you know it's obviously a time in the life that they both held you know extremely close to themselves in terms of realizing the impact it had on them i kind of agree with you it's one of those moments where she needed him but was falling for him and he was feeling alive with her but once the moment was over was there something there to begin with or was it all just centered around the the moment that brought them together you Mm -hmm. know once that moment's gone what keeps what's the glue that keeps them together now which is maybe why he let her go which is maybe why he even knew he probably knew you know that she's got to go somewhere else and do something else i like your answer as well although you could argue that the stylistics would have been the glue that held them together yeah (laughs) yes yes. the del the delphonics Delphonics, (laughs) didn't i blow your mind this time Uh. number three is that fucking bitch l driver Dead or alive, does she make it out of the trailer where she is blind in the middle of a desert with no vehicle, no water, no way to get the hell out of there, and a black mamba snake in the trailer with her? Does El Driver escape death, or does she die then and there? <laughs> I think she had cashed in her last, you know, get out of jail, jail free card, if you will. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there was any surviving that, even somebody as tough as her. And finally, I think this is the second biggest what is this question next to what's in the briefcase how do we think or do you think eldo rain got his neck scar why was he possibly hung or lynched why from what did that neck scar come from i almost feel like it's not something intentional and probably potentially accidental some kind of accidental mishap oh i like that i haven't 100 gone down the road that that can sort of give you a, a set answer but i i feel like it's one of those you won't believe what happened stories <laughs> <laughs> uh did you ever see that coen brother uh anthology western film 
uh, I, where um, I have not watched it yet. It's oh, it's, it's and great. It, You've seen the meme. There's a, James Franco plays a character, or you can even see in the trailer where a guy um, there they're standing there, going to get hung in the gallows, and the guy's crying, and he looks at me, and goes, first time, first time, because he because he was hung before <laughs> and he didn't die for a circumstance that lets you watch it. It reminds me of that. That sometime somehow he escaped it just like James did the first time. Oh, that's funny. I didn't realize it was from that movie. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is Pulp Fiction. Let the investigation begin. It's time to call our first witness. first witness is the 1955 noir film Kiss Me Deadly, written by A.I. Bezaridis and directed by Robert Aldrich. A doomed female hitchhiker pulls Mike Hammer into a deadly whirlpool of intrigue revolving around a mysterious what's in the box. Starring Ralph Meeker, Albert Deeker, Paul Stewart, and Juanita Hernandez. Made on a budget of $410,000 and grossing $626,000 at the box office. With an IMDb rating of 7.5 and a 98 critics and 84 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand, Kiss Me Deadly. So our first film is Kiss Me Deadly from 1955. What did you think of this film? And was this your first time seeing this film? I love the film and it was my first time. I actually had to like actively seek it out to watch it for this show. As did I. Which is weird because I'm a pretty big Mickey Spillane fan. Probably in my 20s, I read all of the My Camera books. Probably even harder to find this movie back when I was reading the My Camera books, which is probably why I never <laughs> yeah. watched it. I think Mickey Spillane is like one of those authors that's like super important to the genres that Tarantino has sort of played yeah. with. The actual pulp fictions <laughs> yeah. that he talks about in the beginning, that, that little blurb that they have at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Mickey Spillane was like one of my first like, like writers that I was like, I have to read everything this guy did, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's since grown a lot, but uh, man, I love Mickey Spillane and it was really cool to watch this sort of weird Mike Hammer movie because very weird it's Mike very Hammer. very bonkers it, it's Mike Hammer in in like it the character's Mike Hammer but it's not really the Mike Hammer that we kind of know and love and if you think about like the Stacey Keach Mike Hammer yes, TV show yeah. and stuff but man I saw so much visual stuff in this movie that yes. I was like especially like not not to jump ahead of ourselves here but I saw some Kill Bill stuff especially oh, okay. like um Kill Bill 2 when she's driving to Bill's yes, yes they do yes. like that sort of shot from behind with her driving with the convertible in the opening of the movie when he picks her up and they're driving like <laughs> yes, those shots i'm like man yeah. this feels like kill bill too like yeah and i noticed that with clockwork orange too is like i think a lot of the stuff that i picked up on was just a lot of the visual the visual things yeah the framing and the and the shots that he decided this is the first time i saw it as well i had heard about this film like this was one of those films that when outside of the dance scene um everyone talks about from uh i forget the name of the movie right now but you know, because they always talk about the dancing from your podcast, Jack Rep Slims. Mm -hmm. This is the film I've always heard about, and it's about something we'll get into towards the end. But there's a there's definitely a reveal of something that is straight up homage. But this movie is all over the place, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It is just like there's some sci-fi elements to this. Like there's a lot of stuff going on that throws us now. 
Like you said, one of the things though, and this is the great thing is, you can see how far we've come in technology and film. There's a lot of bad audio edits in this film. A lot of bad, but it's 1955. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, we're talking, that's damn near 40 years before Pulp Fiction even comes out, and we're coming up on 30. So we're coming up on 75 years almost mm -hmm. since this film came out. That being said, although when you talk about the shower close season, when, so when she's running, when she's running, and then she gets in the car with my camera and he picks her up, I don't know if the, <laughs> the person doing the audio has ever been on a run before, but she is out of breath for, it feels like, the three full minutes of the credit sequences. You know what I mean? Like she, it's, It seems like she's still running alongside the car while yeah. she's in there. And it almost gets to a point where you start to laugh, but it almost gets to porn level of breathing. You know what I mean? Like, like, mm -hmm. And I know in 1955, that's not what they're going for, and they're trying to end with that she's out of breath because she's, you know, they're trying to tell us a story that she's been running away from something for a very long time. But I wonder if the person making the film has ever been on a long run and realized they don't breathe that long and that <laughs> yeah. heavy for that one time. It was the only thing that threw me. And I realized it's Cloris Leachman, the very mm. funny comedian who has now since been gone. But like, I saw that she was in the film and I see her, I'm like, oh my God. Like, yeah. it's so weird to see her young and not being this wise ass funny lady that we, we knew her of before she passed. Yeah. And that sequence also had another visual sort of, you know, how famously in Pulp Fiction for the taxi cab scene. Yes. The rear projection. Quentin used the rear projection, yep. which of course is at play here. Uh, but also the conversation and the the sort of flow of the conversation Although they weren't talking about the same things, it felt very similar to the taxi cab scene. Like it was almost using that as sort of a, a template. Yes. You know, yeah, I know two you people yeah. in a car, you know, talking that have just met, which is, yes. you know, even in 94, it was rare. I mean, I guess, you know, you talk to taxi cab people, but like yeah. not the kind of conversation that Butch had with her. Uh, but here, I, I, <laughs> I you know, I, I saw that influence. What I did have noticed, so this would be my second 40s film, you know, 50s film. So the very first episode, once again, Kubrick's making an appearance again, but we did the killing. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is that time frame, the misogyny that's in that era. This is a very striking comment that that instantly slapped me in the face when I heard it in the film. But Hammer asks, because he's asking what she's running away for, if she's running away from a guy, and if it's some guy who thought that no was a three-letter word, and then... <laughs> And then he says, I should have thrown you off the cliff, and maybe I still will. And I was like, okay. So he's asking her if she's running away from a guy because he wanted to advance on her. She told him no, and he takes no as a three-letter word. And then it kind of assumes, like, does Mike himself not like to be told no? And for him, no is a three-letter word, yes. And then he's pissed off that this is she's that kind of broad who, who has the audacity to tell the man no, so he should throw off a cliff. Like I was just like, wow, 1955 was a different time. Mm -hmm. It was just a real different time. And yeah. I've also noticed in those films, women are literally just there for men. Like, they, they, mm -hmm. they cannot handle life without a man. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Right? What am I supposed to do while you're not here? Mm -hmm. How shall I live? What am I supposed to do? You know, it's, it's like almost, I now know why James Bond is the way James Bond is. Now watch, if the guy Fleming ever watched an American movie from the 40s, get all the information he needed from watching our films by basically, women are just throw themselves at these men and what are they supposed to do otherwise it's just a very striking mm -hmm. difference i mean look we're talking close to 70 years but still like it's 
You think about that's the way people are projected. So when you say, you know, you don't have anyone who resembles you on screen, but when men see this, as this is what being manly is, and women then see that that's what a woman's supposed to be like, Hollywood really was fucking with people's heads back then and informing its public of the roles of society, mm-hmm. which is interesting because Tarantino watches these films and he flips those on his head. He mm-hmm. doesn't follow these tropes, which, you know, for as much influence as he gets from these films, he himself doesn't go down those roads, which is quite remarkable considering that everything he's been fed at a young age is what we're talking about right now. Yeah. You know what else is funny though, Scott? Like um, if you read like um, a lot of the pulp stuff from the forties and fifties, you know, the one thing that that kind of blew my mind, like when I, when I first read like Raymond Chandler Mm -hmm. was, this was a time where like hotels had detectives, like not security. They had straight up detectives. So it's always funny to me that people sort of talk about the fifties and like this, you know, with these extremely rose colored glasses and let's get beyond the misogyny and stuff like that. But like there was some, I mean, just like today, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, you know, violence became a thing, you know, I mean, it's like, it's always been there, and it's well. You had a lot of guys coming back from war, yeah, who had been over at war for years, yeah, who don't know how to turn it off, so they didn't know what PTSD was. So there's, yeah. Yeah. and some people, and you know, some people might not like hearing this, but some people get addicted to what war is. Some people get addicted to the violence of war, and when you come home, and that's all you know, you know, and you're coming home to a brand new kind of world. That's why these movies are the '50s, and so like you know, that's why, like you're saying, some of the '50s was was violent, you know. But yeah, it wasn't just Leave It to Beaver. No. Oh, no, the the Leave It to Beaver late show is when yeah. she burns the dinner and he's whooping her ass in the garage for it because how dare she, you yeah. know? So, yeah, there's a lot left out. There's a lot yeah. of this, which is interesting, right? Because yeah. 50s television is everything is beautiful. The family's the most important thing. 50s movies is, hey, bitch, <laughs> you're mine. No is not a three-letter word. It's just like, <laughs> what's going on? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm helping this damsel in distress, but because I think she might be one of those girls who says no to men, I'm going to throw off a cliff. But you mean it's like, hey, Mrs. Cleaver. You know what I mean? It's like such a, yeah. such a push, yin and yang for the for the time frame. Yeah, I think that's one of the main things that I really sort of enjoy about exploring media from this time period. Like I said, like Raymond Chandler was a huge eye opener for me in terms of like you know our perception of the '40s and '50s versus probably what the reality is. And I mean, I know yeah. it's fiction. But again, yeah. hotel detective. Yes. <laughs> like... Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, funny thing is, because you say that, but when they pull my camera in after, you know, the, the incident we'll talk about in a second, one of the guys calls him a bedroom dick. I fucking <laughs> loved that line. I Obviously, dick didn't mean what it meant back then. I meant private eye, but just a bedroom dick. It's just like, mm-hmm. it's a, such a great phrase that it's no longer, no longer used. Yeah. And another thing, again, I'm not trying to pick up this movie. This is 1955. But once again, like with Cloris Leachman there, breathing heavy for five minutes it seems like when she's getting tortured and apparently hung and when she's killed her feet don't move but she's screaming as <laughs> if she's being flayed you know what i mean like the, the her feet are just dangling there like nothing but you can hear this constant scream and i remember writing that down going is she being killed in another room with a different body because feet don't move there's not a that's not even a twitch she's but she's screaming as if she is being brutalized yeah and, and you know i also wonder like i wonder how much input actors really had back then because fair, fair. C- clearly that's something that the person doing the performance would have said, Hey, my whole body would probably be, you know, responding to this. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, you know, as a performer, she was probably just like, I'm here to read the lines, you know, <laughs> yeah. and get paid. Whereas, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, that's another thing, you know, and and I think that's a lot of the reason that, like, when younger people watch movies from the 30s, the 40s, or the 50s, even the, the 60s, heck, even the 70s. Yeah. Well, let's just throw the 80s in there, too, Scott. Yeah. Heck, <laughs> the 2010s, for God's sake. Right? Let's just... <laughs> it's hard for, you know, sort of to watch it through the lens of... Of 19, the time frame. Yeah, yeah. of 19, yeah. whatever. And they hold it up to our standards from, like you said, from a, a you know, sort of a, a moral standpoint. Yeah. But even, like, technology, you know, like, you yeah. know. And I'm not saying that that's, it's it's wrong for people not to enjoy... Uh, movies for that reason but you're shutting yourself off to a lot of really great sort of entertainment well you're missing out on the building blocks of the stuff that you now have you're missing out where it came from you Mm -hmm. know like you're you're missing out like that's one of the reasons i'm doing this in season two is it's to find where the ingredients came that made the stew that we enjoy you know yeah these are the ingredients without them pulp fiction is not as good as it is all his movies are not as good as they are without the things that came before so you know it's like if people could fly in airplanes back in the 80s when they were smoking allowed you know i mean it was a different different monster back then yeah i mean that's always the thing that's sort of like I, i i understand you know you know, people not liking Citizen Kane. Yes. But to watch Citizen Kane and not appreciate, it developed the entire language of film. I mean, like, <laughs> I remember the first time I, like, I, I blind bought, like, that two-disc edition of, yeah. you know, Citizen Kane when it came out on DVD, you know, however many years ago that was. It was just like, this is a movie that, you know, anybody who loves film talks about. So I was like, I think I can spend the $20 to blind buy it, and, you know. <laughs> and I remember watching it and, like, just, like jaw on the floor, like just like yeah, the old man makeup looks like shit. Yeah. But like just again, it was like you're seeing the language of film being created. Yeah. And for me, that's like one of the great things I love about watching a movie like Citizen Kane. But also like um, even like King Kong, like King Kong, he doesn't even look the same. Yeah. You know, like you know, there's there's moments where it's like they were using the big giant Kong head, and then they were using a miniature or whatever, and they look <laughs> completely different. That doesn't screw up your enjoyment of the movie you know you're no. watching a movie but again you're watching like the birth of like special yeah. effects you know yeah. like true special effects like yeah. you know and stop motion that led to um you know the kind of stuff phil Tippett was doing you know yeah. and then ultimately what they do with cgi now so it's like you know watching all you know that development yeah i don't know man I, we, we no, it's, talk it's the evolution the, yeah it's the yeah. evolution of film that's always been the one of the things that i love about tarantino throwing stuff in his movies that a lot of people say, oh, he ripped this off. You know, and Tarantino's kind of a lot like rock music. You know, I mean, rock music's been around as a, a, a form for 60 some odd years at this point, let's say, whenever you can say Johnny Bo- Be Good came out. You know, I mean, you could argue uh, mm-hmm. the birth of rock and roll, but, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry, a lot hasn't really been done that's completely brand new in rock and roll. During that sixty some odd years, it's well, especially all since <laughs> like the like what would you say like the last real movement was the grunge movement of the nineties. Yeah, so uh-huh. it been thirty years. So even if it's sixty, yeah. the first thirty there was movement, and since then, yeah, stagnant. It's pretty much stagnant. Yeah, but that's that's always been the cool thing, Scott, about discovering you know you know uh, you know finding a new band or something, and then tracing their influences. To me, that's always been what like be, being a, a Tarantino fan was like. It's like, yes. wow, not only am I getting this great sort of movie, but I'm also getting a movie that's going to cause me to go back and find all the stuff that 
Tarantino referenced yeah. that can introduce me to a whole bunch of new stuff. So I, I've never, I mean, like at the end of the day, there's only what they say, there's only three stories, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, Roger talks a lot, a, a lot on the podcast about this, you know, story and plot are two different things, mm-hmm. you know, story is, you know, boy meets girl, you know, whatever, you know, the hero's yeah. journey, things like that. The plot is how you tell that story. So yeah, at the end of the day, no story is going to be a hundred percent unique. It's how you deliver it and how you present it. So I don't know. I've always felt that people that like give Quentin a hard time for doing what he does. It's just, it's really short-sighted because again, he's, he's doing what every other filmmaker does. He's just more blatant about it, which is, uh, is actually commendable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's not trying to hide anything. And at the same time, again, like I said, you know, he's sort of saying, Hey, you know, the DNA of this is stuff that I dug. And you know what, if you dig this, you're probably going to dig it too. When you said something about uh, technology, I was blown away to see Mike Hammer having what looks to be a reel-to-reel fucking answering machine in the 50s. I was like, where the fuck did this come from? It caused me to, to look it up. It caused me to start looking up. I think the original one was the first one ever made. It was like 1949. But it didn't get into real use till many years later, almost decades later. So it's just one of those things where when I saw it on the wall, it was almost like in Star Trek where like we have opening doors now because of Star Trek. That's the only reason those kind of doors that you walk up to, and I always do the fucking force push Ooh. when you're yeah. yeah, is yeah. because of of that but it's just so interesting that you see this in there it was funny because then it's you know as it's responding hit the play it's almost like a siri or alexa the way it's responding you know because it's like so and so department this is not here and it was, for 1955 i was like oh my god what the fuck is this answer and it's built into the wall i was like this is wow this is crazy and like what the fuck yeah, yeah. and then even police work back then like the cop kind of picks the lock and walks in. I was kind of like, like, wow, L.A. really has been crooked for the very long time as far as his cops are concerned. I was just like, okay. Now, again, talk about the one thing that, you know, you bring up Orson Welles where he plays a Mexican in Touch of Evil. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, a terrible. But Vava Voom guy, the Greek slash Italian mechanic who i'm starting to think may be the genesis of mario for fucking mario <laughs> brothers at this point one i loved him as a character he, the guy just seemed like a nice guy i wanted to hug him and feel bad for him for him to have to talk like, like i was like this is a cartoon this guy was just a cartoon character talk about just leaning into the ethnicities of others and like wow like Again, yeah. like you said, 1955. I'm looking at it in 2023 eyes. Yeah. I, I totally understand. But it's weird to see that how blatant it used to be. And now you can kind of understand why people have said stuff about Hollywood and how it is because of how blatantly they just, we haven't even talked about blackface, which thankfully it wasn't in this film, but like just some guy who's just like, Nicky Vavo Voom, and uh, he can only talk in fucking, oh, hey, bada bing, you know, like, like just all yeah. these fucking, he basically makes noises. He makes video game noises and he's for no reason. He's just there for comic relief to make fun of him. You're just kind of like, what the fuck? Like it's it was crazy. I was in, I was like blown away. By yeah, it. I think the other thing, Scott, is like back then. I don't think anybody assumed that you could be subtle and have an audience get what you were going for. So you have to hit him over the head with it. <laughs> so in order to know he was Greek, they had to give him a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he couldn't just have a name like Vinny Stapanopoulos. He had to be mm-hmm. Vinny Stapanopoulos. Yeah. Now you you know if you make that today. You, you call him Vinny Stephanopoulos and you have him eating a, a Giro or something, you know? Yeah. 
or olives, you know what I mean? Like, or they have Greek music when he comes on screen, just to really hammer the point home, you know? Yeah, like the old ding, 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 ding. ding. Oh my God, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, wow, uh, the fifties. When, when when you hear someone say the good old days, yeah, we know what they're saying now. Yeah, I also, again, I, I really think a, a lot of that is probably just knowing that Hollywood has always underestimated audiences. Yes, I don't think there's ever been a period where Hollywood Hollywood hasn't assumed that the audience is going to get what they're going for. Yes. Well, <laughs> it could explain sometimes some of the... I feel like we're going back to a dumbed-down version of Hollywood again. You know, I feel like we're back there. We've had some great films, but I feel like the popular ones, like the Avatars, which offer nothing. It's just a video game load screen come to life. Mm-hmm. Just retreads a story that's not all that exciting. And he's like, oh, okay. It's like, oh, it's visually beautiful, but there's no story. It's like, oh, so it's the, uh, it's a screensaver, you know? Or now we're going to get the 10th rendition of fucking The Fast and the Furious, the Guy's the worst family member ever. I don't want to ever hear it's about family. No one puts their family in that much danger ever. I feel like we were getting back to some of that. We're getting back to dumbed down crowds. And unfortunately, right now, Hollywood seems to be right because we keep getting dumb movies and people keep going to see them. Yeah. You know, and it's it's frustrating because Avatar 2 should not have made the money it's made. There's so many better movies out there and people just, are we just a society of mouth breathers now? Like, are we in trouble? Well, it, it's also like sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, there's been talk about saving the movie industry or saving uh, the movie industry as we know it, save movie theaters. And it's self-fulfilling in the sense that, like, The idea is you can't pack movie theaters unless you do the dumb shit like that. Yeah. But at the same time, like the beginning of the end for Hollywood really was probably when the first multiplex opened. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, um, we had a multiplex on the outskirts of town. Uh, But for the most part, if we were going to go see a movie, we'd go downtown to our two screener. It was two movies, you know, two screens. That was it. And I remember in 82, (laughs) E.T., ran on the other one screen for like 14 months. So it was like E.T. and whatever ever new movie we were getting this week. Yeah. But yeah, I, you know, I, I I think it's one of those things where it's it's the whole idea that like, oh, you know, nobody's going to go to the movies unless it's big dumb shit happening on screen. <laughs> yeah. I, I see people talking about like, oh, streamers were the end, you know, are what's causing all this because, you know, people won't go to pay to go see a movie if they can watch it for free eventually, which I don't yeah. sort of buy into for me. No, me either. I think it depends on what the movie experience is. Exactly. So like uh, Dumb and Dumber 9, you could wait till it streams. Mm-hmm. But Indiana Jones 5, mm-hmm. not gonna what it's going to be good, but yeah. Indiana, that's, a, that's a movie you want to go see. Yeah. A Tarantino film you want to go yeah. see. Some of these other ones, you can go, yeah, I can wait for Minions 9 to come out on streaming. Well, and the other thing, too, is like there's always something to watch, you know, whereas I saw a lot of movies I wouldn't have actively gone out and saw you know, 20 or 30 years ago, just because I was sitting at home and I was fucking bored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, let me go see this piece of shit movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. instead yeah. of sitting at home staring at the yeah. wall, you know. I've probably seen more pieces of shit movies yeah. than good movies. That's probably the facts, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just what when, it is, yeah. When I lived in Jersey, there was a, a, a family-owned multiplex that was sort of within walking distance from my, my condo, and they had a Nathan's Famous in the food court. And you could bring it into the theater. So I could go to Nathan's, order a hot dog, fries. And they had these little trays that, like, actually clipped into your seat. So there would be days where I was like, you know, man, I could go for some crinkle-cut cheese fries. Watching the movie was like 
the bonus. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the theater to get Nathan and it was like whatever piece of shit movie I watched, you know, was was the reason for me to eat Nathan's, you know. Yeah. And I think nowadays people are just like they're not seeing any piece of shit movie that gets put out, you know. Yeah. They're just seeing the big piece of shit <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The big piece of shit movie from James Cameron this week. <laughs> yeah. But you know what you know what else is funny, Scott? Like I think what Hollywood's going through it's kind of what music's going through right now, too. Like, if you think about it, like, the Hollywood icon or the rock star, quote-unquote, really existed in a very small window of time, if you yeah. think about it. Yeah. And then you sort of had Hollywood pre-Cary Grant, if you will. Mm -hmm. The idea of a rock star, like, the Beatles kind of kickstarted all that. Before yeah. that, people were making a living playing music. And yeah. they could just walk down the street and not really get noticed. And I think yeah. Hollywood's the same way. Like, we created this sort of idea of these larger-than-life Hollywood icons, whereas Hollywood was doing fine prior to that. You know, they had their yeah. contract stars, sure. But, like, uh, and everybody talks about, like, you know, Gene Simmons famously says, you know, rock is dead. Nobody can ever be a rock star again. And he's looking at the, at that through the lens of nobody's ever going to make an absurd amount of money again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that's kind of where movies are now, too. It's like they'll never stop making movies, but the business around and behind movies is going to change. Yeah. Just like the business behind anything changes over time. But like yeah. Hollywood and the music business were really weird, you know, 40 or 50 year pockets of just absurd sort of growth, if you will. Yeah. Now it could be streaming. Streaming on the internet has really changed life yeah. for good and bad. Yeah. And it's changed the way films like this get made mm -hmm. and things that happen in films like this. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the things why you should watch a movie like Kiss Me Deadly, besides the influences we're going to get into in a second, is you get to see how movies have changed. Like you do get to see that it's the evolution of it because in this film, like I said, we have this gentleman who's basically Greek Mario. I mean, honestly, the more I thought about it, I was like, this is fucking Mario. This is, I think someone loves Kiss Me Death who created Mario. Like, this is where they got the character from. They just changed him from being a mechanic to a plumber. He yeah. sings a song while he's in this car. My mustache, my father's mustache, and I have no idea what this, what they're singing. It just was so bizarre. But I did love that back in 1955, if Dynamite was attached to the engine of your car, it was very easy to detach from your car as well. Yeah. There was no problemo. You took that motherfucker right off. Get it right the fuck off. And this has been a reoccurring thing that Mr. Fucking White said in Reservoir Dogs, and it has gone back and forth through all these movies I see. In Reservoir Dogs, if you get shot in the gut, it's painful. But it takes a long fucking time to die from. In this film, a gentleman gets shot in the gut, and he oh. dies very, very quickly. Super quickly. <laughs> Almost as if the baby went into his gut, hit like a spine, and went into his heart. Like, he dies quick. It's like, gunshot, say my last word, I'm dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really was. But this film, before we jump into influences, it's all over the place, but it is still very good. But the women characters in here, sometimes I don't know what they were there for. He goes to that one club where he meets up with one of the henchmen, apparently. I guess he's like, we think he's our total villain, but he's not. He's almost like the hired hand for this other guy we eventually realize is the real villain. And we realize that this is really about nuclear. Like someone has stolen some nuclear reactor or something, which is bizarre. And they don't know how nuclear works. A lot of times in this film, they don't know how things actually work. They don't know how bombs think dynamite car work. Truth serum. Apparently, when you give someone truth serum in this film, they go to sleep and they talk in their sleep. That's how you get the truth. <laughs> <laughs> 
I laughed my ass off when they said that. I was like, what the fuck? And they uh, they don't know how to properly store whatever uranium or whatever they've stolen. But with the ladies, like that, he goes to that one place and they're playing tennis and this girl just shows up. He pulls in behind her. And I don't know if there was some kind of like thing going on while they were driving because we don't get any of that information. But all of a sudden she gets out of the car and they start kissing immediately. Like <laughs> immediately. Immediately they're kissing. And, and I had actually paused the movie for a second and then I had to think, did I get on my phone and miss something? Like, I had to actually actively ask myself, did I miss a part where this girl was already in? Like, I had to go back and look at the list of who was the characters were mm-hmm. on the IMDb and figure out if I'd missed this woman. Like, yeah. was she the one that was in the other room that was the, the roommate who ends up being something else at the end? And then it was like, no. And it's like, okay, so this, she makes out with her at this house. Couple of times, and that's the last time we see her. I was like, "What yeah. happened here?" Like, what? I was like, "Okay," but again, still a really good movie because it also influences something else. Which I want to talk about the influences of Pulp Fiction. But one of the major influences while we watch it, I think it also influenced another person that you, a movie you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. a maybe Mr. George Lucas. We're going to talk about in a mm-hmm. second. So, I don't want to spoil the movie. The movie is really good. It is good for 1955. You'll see a lot, and it's what we're about to talk about. And now it's time. To present the evidence. My first thing that I noticed as an influence. Number one. As you said, it was the use of rear projection. However, I will not say that this movie is the only movie that made Tarantino want to use rear projection when he did his scene. It was definitely an homage he was making when he did rear projection in the taxi scenes you're talking about. This is one of the movies that used it. It could very well have been the movie that inspired him, but any film from this era was using uh, rear projection as it was. So I put it down as an influence for sure, but it could have also been other films from the time frame. But you see it in this film. So And since there's quite a few of them in here Mm -hmm. that... Uh, I've noticed. And I will also ask you if you've seen any an Adam M. When I did the True Romance episode, we talked about how the films we talked about there influenced other movies that he had in them. Uh, so I try to stay with this, but as we talked about, there are some that go to other films, so I'll be gladly to pick those up as well. My second one. Number two. Is the faceless villain, i.e. Mr. Marcellus Wallace. Mm. We only hear the voice of Marcellus when, when the whole scene starts in Pulp Fiction, when we actually get to our very first story, Vincent Vega and uh, Mia Wallace. And we do it here. We don't get to, which is, I mean, this movie takes it a long time. We don't get to see the arch villain in this film till the end. We hear his voice and we only see his shoes and pant legs, which, again, there's no doubt in my mind Tarantino used that as, I mean, he used it not only for, obviously, Marcellus Wallace, but we'll get it again in Kill Bill when we don't see Bill till volume two or technically the second half of that film. So a definite homage there for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that as well? Yeah. No, that's not something that I immediately jumped to, but 100%. I'm seeing it, yeah. I, I only reason I noticed is it, it was just because, you know, the girl's feet are hanging, and then we never pan up to see him, and then we move away from him and come back. I was like, holy shit. Again, they do it differently. For Pulp Fiction, we hear his voice. We don't see him. In this movie, we hear the voice, but we're, we're told that the pinstripe pants and these shoes that are very recognizable, that's the only outfit this gentleman wears, by, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the entire film of Kiss Me Deadly, he only wears this pants and shoes. So, like, they, like, that's his outfit. So, I guess back in the 50s, you had a good Sunday suit, and you wore that for all your major events, especially if you're a villain. You stayed in that attire. Yeah. So everyone knew it was you. But yeah, so he definitely wore that. And so I, I just noticed immediately like, Tarantino definitely used that, especially, in, you know, he starts it in Pulp Fiction and then we jump to it again when we get to kill Bill. But when he really wants to introduce a villain, he did a great job. We just hear Marcellus's voice for a good five minutes while Bruce is, you know, while Butch is sitting there. And then even when we do go to Marcellus, it's the back of his neck. We don't mm-hmm. really see Marcellus until he almost gets hit by the car mm-hmm. because when we see him, it's from a distance. He's out of focus later yeah. on. 
down that scene. So mm-hmm. he, Tarantino definitely leans into this as a reference. But he does his, obviously, in a completely different way. But he saw that and thought, I like that. He found that to be, obviously, interesting to him that, you know, instead of seeing our villain, you know, like a lot of Bond movies do or a lot of major movies do, he was like, well, let's keep him in the dark until it kind of gives you that, who is this person? Or helps build the mythology of the person so when you finally see them, you've already got this, like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Our third one. Number three. When Mike Hammer, I just feel this is a genesis for it. I could be wrong. But when he tells the building soup to tell his wife to shut up because she's the only one talking for him, I just couldn't help but think that this was somehow maybe put the the inception in his brain for the tell that bitch to be cool moment <laughs> between Honey Bunny. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, like maybe I'm wrong, but like yeah. as a fan of the film and watching it, like she just kept running her mouth. And yeah, he looked yeah. at him. He didn't mm-hmm. talk to her just like he does in the movie. He's like, tell her to shut up. And then he tells her to shut up. Like obviously Tarantino takes it to a whole nother level with it, but they felt like that was the beginning or at least that little spark for him to eventually use that in some mm-hmm. kind of dialogue that maybe he just liked the way she did it or he just remembered it when he was writing the scene and then decided bitch be cool tell the yeah. bitch to chill the fuck out you know what I mean like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he definitely takes it to a whole nother level now the fourth one I saw number four was the boxing gym moment again there's moments in this film where they come out of nowhere what I will give them credit for and this is 1955 clearly it's either a budgetary reason or just really good filmmaking I can't decide which it was but in this boxing gym moment there's this black boxing trainer and my camera shows up and they're standing next to each other and the camera's facing them they're in a two shot and there's other boxers and people doing things but we're meant to believe that behind us is a professional is a heavyweight fighter who's getting ready for a big fight coming up not once do we see this fighter they never turn. So either they were just able to find a nice spot somewhere and make it look like a gym and they just weren't going to turn around to show that we didn't have a ring in the fighter. Or it was just kind of like, you know, just good filmmaking, like make us think of who this fighter was. But I believe in this moment and probably some other noir films. But when they're discussing the fighter throwing the fight, I think that helped to inspire our conversation with Marcellus and Butch. And obviously he expands it, but they're talking about, you know, oh, every fight you have, the guy throws it. So I feel like he took a little bit of who this boxing promoter character was, trainer was and his ability to throw fights and then we put it with Marcellus who seems to probably have a stable or run something where he he's able to be the puppet master for the boxing area in that time which is why Butch gets pulled into his web I felt like that was the genesis of that your your feeling on that yeah I mean I I can see that but the the boxer being you know paid to throw a fight and then having a what a you know a moment of uh, conscience yeah. um that's kind of like one of the sort it's definitely of, a trope for sure exactly yeah. but but i can see that but i i do remember you know sort of an interview with tarantino at one point talking about how he like oh he wanted to turn all those tropes on their head so, yes but yeah no i i definitely i mean uh, nothing you've said is sort of out of the realm of being you know being able to draw a line between very cool very cool yeah this is like me being in the basement i'm in and the only thing i don't have behind me is this board with his face and red string going to different <laughs> things this is for his influences <laughs> me looking frazzled there's 12 years of cigarettes piling up on one side of mm-hmm. me being crazy number five now the big one the fifth one that i saw then i will turn it over to you to see if there's any i've missed it's the one which is why i chose this film and it's the one that if anyone knows it's why this film is so talked about it's the trunk with the light exuding from it as the inspiration for mr marcel swass's briefcase mm-hmm. we see it twice in the film And it also, in my mind, made me think of something else. The first time I saw it, it's quick. 
Mm-hmm. It opens up, and it's done in a little different way. And one of our characters actually gets burned by it. So, you know, they make a comment in the film about, uh, they, they mention the Manhattan Project. Without saying it's nuclear, they mention, they say some words, as the guy says, that'll mean nothing. But if you understand what I'm saying, these words mean everything kind of thing. Which I, I enjoyed that part of that film. I was like, oh, that's pretty smart writing. The fact that this is hidden in some gym locker downtown was kind of like, this is nuclear. Like, who's hiding in this small? Whatever. So he burns himself, he takes it, and then it's at the end of the film. With, uh, we finally find out our villain is he gets shot in the gut and dies very quickly. If anyone knows anything about films, especially older films, if you tell a woman not to do something, you're going to get the Adam and Eve response. She's mm-hmm. going to eat. She's going to bite the apple. All right. The snakes told her not to. She's going to bite the apple. So she has to bite the apple and she opens up the box. Again, it's a shot from behind, and she opens it, and the light washes over, just like when Vincent opens up the can. And again, he just gave us a clue with words, but the difference being in Pulp Fiction, obviously, it's a briefcase, it's a light, we don't know what's inside it, no one gets burned by it, but this woman has to look. Now, what I also felt this inspired was not just Mr. Tarantino. Mm -hmm. This inspired Mr. George Lucas and Mr. Steven Spielberg for when they did Raiders of the Lost Ark mm. and the fucking Germans got melted. Now, they <laughs> open the entire arc, but the arc opens, the light hits, and then obviously the demons come out and melt their face, so they actually take their own from it. But there's no doubt in my mind that Mr. George Lucas and Mr. Quentin Tarantino were both inspired by this moment and then used them in their own films in their own ways. I never once felt that when I was watching it in Kiss Me Deadly that it was stolen by either of the gentlemen. I felt that they saw this, they liked it, and they took it their own way. Mm-hmm. She is burned, and this thing stays open, and it eventually burns and blows the house up. Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, so yeah. they definitely take it to an extreme. But uh, your feelings on that, I'm assuming you also knew that this was what this movie was. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the, the thing that I kind of appreciate about it is Tarantino kind of used two influences. You know, he, obviously the, you know, the, the glow from this trunk. Yep. But in Pulp Fiction, it is used as a MacGuffin, yes. which is, you know, what well, I think probably a term that originated with Hitchcock, which is basically really a meaningless item that propels our heroes to do what they do. So whereas in this movie, it's very clearly sort of defined. Tarantino used that as a jumping off point and said, well, I'm just going to make it a MacGuffin. It doesn't matter what's in the briefcase. Yes. You know, and in this movie, we we realize that that's the important thing, much like. Uh-huh. In Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. So in Raiders, this is this is actually more closely resembled to Raiders because it's it is the Ark is what they need to do, but don't yeah. open it. Just like in this film, don't open this thing. Yeah, it's 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 really kind of interesting to me again because he sort of took two you know things, one very specific reference, but then said, yep. "I'm going to make it in in pulp. I'm going to make it sort of not important in the overall grand scheme as a viewer." You know what I mean? Yet it's the most important <laughs> unknown in history of his films, yeah. right? It's almost it's one of the most important things in all of history. And like, it's one of those unanswered things that you don't know. Mm-hmm. It's that, what is it? You know, like what's in there? And as I said on the podcast when I did a year ago, is there's nothing that anyone could tell you, even if it's the truth, that's going to be better than what mm-hmm. you already came up with in your mind. It's impossible. Exactly. It's impossible exactly. to me, which is the genius of yeah. making something meaningless so full of meaning, so yeah. full of like angst to know what's yeah. inside that briefcase. That's the beauty of it. And, you know, I think uh, I really enjoy the the references you picked out. Again, for me, um, I'm not as aware sometimes. I don't want to say not as intelligent. <laughs> But uh, well, in fairness, I'm doing this in purpose to find references. So yeah. if I don't find something, I'm, I'm definitely, uh-huh. I'm sure I've missed a few. 
I know for a fact that there's probably things that I sat there and watched and didn't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, I don't know if we did it as we were recording or right before, but you mentioned that in the opening of this film, actually you did, when she's driving mm -hmm. away, the behind shot reminds you of Kill Bill Volume 2, the opening of that. I'm watching this trying to find references for Pulp Fiction, and mm -hmm. I missed that. Like, I completely missed that that is a reference for something else. You know, like, I know it's a reference for other movies, yeah. as we'll get into in our second film, but I'm not paying attention. Like, at that moment, I'm not paying attention to what you caught. Yeah. It. I completely yeah. fucking slipped by me. Yeah, overall, the, the things I noticed, Scott, were just the, maybe more of the techniques, and even the dialogue. I think a lot of people, you know, undersell dialogue in movies from the 50s. Yes. Not in the sense that they're talking in any kind of way that people talked, but at the same time, there's conversations happening at points that don't 100% drive the story. And I think that was probably something that definitely influenced Tarantino, which is, you know, sort of the overall idea of just creating a, a mood, if you will. Yeah. And, and I think that's what, like, a lot of the uh, the 1950s noir films do. And it's definitely an influence on a lot of filmmakers, I think. Agreed. I don't think I don't think they ever went all the way, though. They didn't have completely meaningless conversations. <laughs> but you could sort of people, you know, have people you know, talking about normal shit that people talk about, which kind of got lost for a period and then it kind of got brought back in a big way, you know, thanks to Tarantino. I think also it's, it's a trick to be able to do it and be genuine and not just do it because you need to do it. Mm -hmm. And it depends on the movie. Some people write for the purpose of the story. Now, you couldn't have a James Bond or a spy film while talking about having hamburgers. <laughs> we would be bored because, you know, the key is, is we're supposed to be in suspense. We're supposed to know what's going on. So, but, you know, if anyone could do it, Maybe fucking Tarantino could be able to do it. And now it's time to read the verdict. Now, in your opinion, as it comes to this film, Kiss Me Deadly, do you believe that Tarantino was inspired by the things he put into Pulp Fiction, or do you think he ripped them off blatantly from this film? I think it was definitely an inspiration type thing. I agree, but I've come into this season with my eyes completely wide open, and in the very first episode, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it or not, but in Reservoir Dogs, he definitely, I feel, stole one thing. And if you listen to it, I think he stole the two guns shooting, but there's more weight to that moment in Reservoir Dogs than there was in City on Fire. Everything else is homage, and he did it better. I feel the same way here. The biggest one that anyone would notice is going to be the trunk, but it's completely different. It's a trunk. It's not a briefcase. It's more closely associated. If you want to say like someone ripped it off or at least really took what it was, it would definitely be Raiders of the Lost Ark, except instead of it just being radiation that burned everybody, it was the ghost of the horrors of, of what the Jews had to go through going through the desert, getting the Germans, melting their face and yeah. everything. Yeah. But it was that was definitely inspired by it too. And I just, like you said, I think this was an inspiration. He saw it. He liked it that it was just that this light and you didn't know what it was. Like you said, he wanted to use it as a MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. And it's the biggest MacGuffin, in my opinion, in film history because everyone wants to know what's in the fucking briefcase. Mm. In Seven, what's in the box? We know it's in the fucking box. We don't know what's in the fucking briefcase. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> so Brad Pitt would not have been able to shoot him because he doesn't know what's in the fucking briefcase because yeah. no one gives up what's in the briefcase. <laughs> In the case of Kiss Me Deadly, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1971 dystopian crime film, A Clockwork Orange, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. In the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct conversion experiment that doesn't go as planned. Starring Malcolm McDowell, Patrick McGee, Adrian Corey, and Miriam Carlin. Made on a budget of $1.3 and grossing $114 million at the box office. 
with an 8.3 IMDb rating and an 88 critics and 93 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand, A Clockwork Orange. Now this movie, we're about to get into the second film from Mr. Stanley Kubrick, The Amazing A Clockwork Orange, a movie that had a major impact on my life when I was younger. It's one of the reasons I'm a huge Kubrick fan. I absolutely love this film. Look, I'll be honest, I kind of think I picked this just so we could go over because when I realized it was an influence, I was like, these are some of the movies. I wanted them to be movies that people knew, but also people didn't know. So I wanted to kind of give like this two-handed approach of like, hey, sort of like a sim of speculation, sort of like their podcast. Hey, go check out these films that Tarantino Mm -hmm. looked at the reference yeah but also some of them are popular ones that you may have already seen now did you notice these in them and if people haven't seen a clockwork orange they've at least probably heard of a clockwork orange of the two films this is the one they've heard of of my six films so far today this is definitely the one most people have heard of Mm -hmm. that being said what are your opinions on a clockwork orange because i think it still stands the test of time today to how impactful a movie it is and all the stuff it says. And we're talking, it's now 40 years old, coming up on 42 years old. That's, no, 50. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, I can't I was, do math, apparently. It's math. 52. <laughs> yeah. I tried to make myself younger. It's 52 years old now. So it is almost AARP age-worthy. So your opinions on A Clockwork Orange? Yeah, um, A Clockwork Orange is one of those films that you have to see if you're at all considering yourself a student of film, a hardcore fan of film, it's one of the films on that list that you're going to have to watch eventually. Whether yes. you go back and ever watch it again is another story because this by no, it, it's not a film that I, I watch very often. <laughs> you're not sitting down with a wife on a nice, yeah. on a Saturday night, some popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually pretty cool. The first time I saw this, I was in my 20s and a friend of mine called me up and it was Halloween, whatever year it was. And at midnight, on Halloween, a theater in Princeton, New Jersey was showing on wow. film A Clockwork Orange. So my first ever time seeing this movie was, you know, and it's one of those movies, you know, it's one of those experiences where I can remember exactly where I sat. You know, there's certain movies like that. And I remember when that initial orange sort of, you know, uh, title screen comes up. As soon as that came up with the music, I was like, oh man, I'm in for something. <laughs> and it was a movie that, I thought about the entire drive home. I thought about the next day. I thought about the day after that. I thought about it for a long time. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a movie that I've watched a lot, but it's a movie that's impacted me. And it definitely uh, sort of spurred my interest in going and discovering Kubrick's other films. Yes. My first indoctrination to Kubrick was obviously The Shining at a young age. Too young of an age. Mm -hmm. The Shining fucked me up for many years as a child. And then having heard about, you know, Clockwork Orange from other people, I absolutely fell in love with this film. It's funny. I hadn't seen it in a while. And then I go to do this again. And then I'm sitting down looking at the references. And it's just slapping me in the face like, holy shit. Wow, this happens in this. Like, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction have a lot of nods towards this film. It's one of those films. For the time frame that this movie comes out in, in 1971, the violence of this film is visceral and very extreme for the time period. Like, mm-hmm. this is early 70s. We, you know, we haven't even got into taxi drivers and stuff. Like, we're not there yet. Kubrick is out the gate early. And, you know, I don't know if it gets enough credit for it, but I almost feel like this is one of those movies that helps open the floodgates for the kind of directors. Like I said on, I'm trying to remember which podcast, which which one of my episodes I said this on, or it could have been on my extra podcast that we do. But I feel that because of the 
Actually, it was the Reservoir Dogs uh, anniversary special we did. Reservoir Dogs, the violence it had 20 years later in 91, or 92, 21 years later. I believe if you watch Goodfellas in 1990, Goodfellas is tame compared to fucking Casino, which comes out in 95. All of that is, uh, my real belief, is a tribute to the fact that Tarantino pressed the envelope in 92. And obviously, Casino's being made probably 94 while Pulp Fiction, so I can't give it all Pulp Fiction. But what Tarantino did with just the level of violence in the 90s films coming back from the 80s, where it's all cartoon violence. It's all Mm -hmm. explosions and, you know, big action sequences. And no one's really getting, you know, if they're getting killed, it's always with, like, stick around. So, you know, it's that mm-hmm. one moment kind of thing. But if you watch Goodfellas, there's violence in it. But the level of violence that's in Casino five years later is extremely up compared mm-hmm. to the other film. So I wonder, you know, the level of violence that comes into the 70s, how much of that can also be attributed for Kubrick kind of breaking that seal yeah. with this film? Because it's extreme violence in this film. and. It's not that it's all visual. It's mm-hmm. just what is ha- like what kind of violence is being perpetrated and how they're perpetrating it with such a blase fair attitude towards it that kind of um, sets a tone for the rest of that decade that I feel may he may not get enough. Well, I don't know if he wants the credit for it, yeah. but that film gets the credit for pushing the boundaries. Yeah, I, I think I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I would say that if you really want to sort of look at the the match that sort of lights the fuse there. A Clockwork Orange is definitely a part of that discussion, but I think you probably have to look at, like, probably hand-in-hand with the stuff that Peckinpah was doing. Yeah. Which, you know, that was almost like a stylistic aspect of Peckinpah's films, whereas... With Kubrick in this film, it was more more of a, a technique that needed to be used. Whereas yeah. with Peckinpah, you knew what you were signing up for. Yeah, you know. But yeah, no, definitely. That's an excellent point about you know sort of moments that fundamentally change what's acceptable on screen. Yeah, and yeah, uh, Clockwork Orange definitely probably contributed to that. Another thing that I really sort of, uh, again, this was more a non-tangential sort of connection, but the one thing I found between, you know, sort of what Quentin does in certain portions of Pulp Fiction is what overall A Clockwork Orange does, which is creates this overall level of uncomfortableness, which is really hard to do. You know, (laughs) I think another filmmaker around this time that probably successfully did it was like Toby Hooper with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Mm -hmm. the dinner scene in that movie. It's really, really difficult, Scott, because there's a point where it almost seems like it's exploitive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a point where you're going to cross that line and it becomes exploitive. Yeah. So to like dance it and not cross that line is, uh, I think, one of the real strengths that Kubrick had as a filmmaker with The Clockwork Orange. And, And again, I saw that that overall influence, I saw that in Pulp Fiction, especially like in how Quentin handled the gimp scene and then also even the uh, the adrenaline scene. Yeah. Tonally, I think he definitely was influenced in how to stage and build and not go over to the point where it's exploitive. Yeah. Not to say that Quentin hasn't gone into exploitive territory because... I think what he does is like, so Kill Bill, it's an homage to we're going to go into exploitive because mm-hmm. we're paying homage to a genre. Yeah, but yeah. like I talked about on Django, when we are blowing away the white slavers, it's joyful, 
cartoon violence, heads exploding, say goodbye to the white folks, blow and shoot Mr. Scarlet through a doorway. Fantastic. But when we get to the real violence of what slaves had to go through, it's grounded. There's no mm-hmm. joy. And we're not, you know, D'Artagnan gets ripped apart by dogs. The Mandingo fight scene. You know, just even the way that Django walks and with the whip marks, and, you know, and then the way they handle him flashing back to his wife being whipped. Like, those moments are real heavy and weighted, and he doesn't play with those. You know, when we're making fun of the stupid bad guys, when we blow away the Nazis and the glorious bastards, joyous when the Shoshana's family gets killed underneath. Very weighted. He knows the moments when we can have fun and have fun with the violence because we're making fun of people who deserve what they're getting. And then when the real weight of hey, do you know about these atrocities that people went through? He brings the real weight of it to it. And much like Kubrick in this film, there are moments in this film where the whole point of the film is the absurdity of violence and how, you know, like it goes back and forth to yin and yang where he can't do violence, but then he loves violence. Like in the one scene, like what I also put down in my notes is like for the 70s, there was a lot of nudity for the early 70s. There's a lot of nudity in this film. And what I think something that Tarantino, and I didn't put this down as an inspiration because this is all over the place, but it's the morality that he would play with. You know, you can almost say that, you know, there's always been an anti-hero. Anti-heroes are everywhere. I think after some of the movies we get in the 90s where obviously people like Tarantino and Scorsese really lean heavily and even the Coen brothers on these anti-heroes. We get shows like Breaking Bad and stuff where, you know, now the anti-hero starts to become kind of uh, in fashion. But you've got Alex and his droogies out for a night of mayhem. They come upon a, a rival gang who is about to rape a woman. They stop that rape to beat the shit out of this gang. You think, oh, maybe they're not so bad. Moments later, they drive out to the countryside and brutalize a man and rape his wife. Mm-hmm. It's that flip. It's that duality. It's that you want to root for them, but then you, you as the audience member are now forced to make a decision or forced mm-hmm. to make a, are we rooting for these guys or are we not rooting for these guys? You know, yeah. like, but it gets played with even in, 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 you know, not just Tarantino films, but a lot of films, you know, you, you play with them or sometimes you're like, I'm rooting for them. And then you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Like uh, even in Pulp Fiction. And when we start off this film, we're big fans of, of Vincent Vega. What he does and is able to help Mia Wallace, we love her. But by the end of the film, we realize this guy's a fucking asshole. Yeah. He gets killed. You're like, oh, but then after we get to the whole moment that, you know, how he's a douchebag to fucking Mr. Wolf and he just shoots Marvin in the face and just you're like, God, he's a fucking asshole. Mm-hmm. You know, and he almost causes violence at the fucking diner because he's got to come out and you're not going to do, like, if it wasn't for fucking Sam's character, they'd all be dead, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of thing where Tarantino seen these in these kind of films and flips it for us. We, we see that the duality of like one minute we are all on board for this team and the next minute we're like fuck that guy I want him dead you know so yeah, it's yeah. a very interesting flip flop that even in this film we we get mm-hmm. and as we'll get into it in influence and I don't want to kind of jump the gun but the use of music by Kubrick in this film is pure mastery mm-hmm. and who he chooses to use Beethoven mm-hmm. just unbelievable it's just an unbelievable moment. And then some of the imagery, like when they get home from raping and he's, Alex is getting undressed, the naked dancing Jesuses. I don't know what it is. That statue that, that someone made of three or four Jesuses with the crown of thorns, naked but dancing, like almost like doing a, a kick line. I don't know why that image sticks in my head that Alex has that. But mm-hmm. every time I see it, it's just like the imagery is just unbelievable. Yeah. And very few have his his style. You know, like mm-hmm. very few are able to do what it's called in terms of an insert shot and make that insert shot so fucking impactful. Mm-hmm. And just the images itself, like 1971, a blasphemous image of, you know, we're not we're not as I don't want to say not uh, religious, but re- religion is not as as strong a point in certain parts of the world anymore like it used to be. For for 1971, 51 years ago, for there to be a shot of three or four naked Jesus statues 
who's standing there doing like a kick line is blasphemous for many people. And he is putting it front and center in his fucking film. And the two moments that stick out the most for me have music based. And I believe when we get into this in a few more minutes, these are huge influences on Tarantino. The first is what I mentioned. It's the singing in the rain, home invasion scene, right? This really is where Reservoir Dogs gets in. I was going to say, stuck in moment. the middle with you. Stuck yeah. in the middle moment. And oh, I hate to admit this. I hate to admit this. But when he is doing singing, when I hear singing in the rain, when I hear the singing in the rain, I do the step, step, kick. Like, mm-hmm. it's just in my head that whenever he sings it, as he does it, the little like music break, he's kicking or hitting somebody. It's genius. It's mm-hmm. absolute genius. And the fact that Kubrick asked Malcolm, you know, does he know a popular song? Because they were mm-hmm. they did this this scene for three days and it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And he goes, can you sing anything? And the only song he knew was singing in the rain. I mm-hmm. mean, these happy accidents that are cinematic milestones, yeah. you yeah. know? What is your impression of that moment in that scene? Yeah. Well, the, the other interesting thing about it is in, in Reservoir Dogs, Stuck in the Middle with You is just sort of married to that scene. Yep. The song doesn't serve any other purpose. Whereas in A Clockwork Orange, it's called back to later in the film it's yes, a trigger so there's a very specific reason for it in a clockwork yes. orange um and again i think that's tarantino not a hundred percent using the influence the way uh, you know other people, people would. think he would yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 exactly you know but but tying tying a, a sort of a, a sequence of brutality to a popular song. Yeah, it's that uh, flip on, flipping a, a moment on its head because mm-hmm. if you're raping and home invasion, it should be some kind of big, dramatic, mm-hmm. violent swills, feels like a horror moment, and then all of a sudden you've got this pop bubblegum song, you know, in Reservoir Dogs, or this catchy show tune from Broadway being sung to also inflict horrible moments of violence on people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It fucks you up as the audience. Mm-hmm. Cooper would do this again at the end of Full Metal Jacket. They're singing the Mickey Mouse Club song mm-hmm. as this city is burning mm-hmm. in Vietnam. That makes the moment so much more powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, like if any, you know, I always keep giving Tarantino all this crap, but I really believe that maybe the godfather of they're not so much needle drops because it doesn't do it throughout the entire his entire films, but a man who understands the power of music in a moment, Stanley Kubrick fucking understands it and mm-hmm. he gets it. And it's littered throughout his films as you and when you watch them. And especially like when I'm talking about like uh, this and Full Metal Jacket. It, those moments are just like they're ingrained in my head. Like you said, with Reservoir Dogs moment and then some of the moments in Pulp Fiction, especially when you have the rape scene and the Comanche song, those songs are tied to those moments. Much like for me, Singing in the Rain, I can't hear Singing in the Rain. I don't even have Danny Kaye singing it. Or I'm sorry, not, or not Danny Kaye, but um, Fred Astaire singing Fred Astaire, it. Yeah, all yeah. I hear, all I think of is Alex kicking a guy, beating a man up, mm-hmm. singing it, you know? And if I hear the Mickey Mouse theme, I think of it being sung while a village in, or uh, this small city in Vietnam is being burned after being napalmed. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like these moments mm-hmm. are tied, and these two filmmakers... Obviously, Kubrick before him really have an appreciation to understand how powerful it really is to combine an image with the audio. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, similar, is the use of the Lone Ranger theme song, which has a proper name for it, when there's the three-way in fast motion <laughs> set up in his room. It's just... That's what makes this movie so amazing. I think that's why I love this film and why I loved Pulp Fiction. Is it's they're just filmmakers who are just on a different plane. They're just playing. We're all playing checkers, and these motherfuckers are playing chess. Mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. they're playing each other in chess. Like they're not playing against other people. They're playing against themselves in chess. Yeah. And the rest of us are just dancing around, figuring out. So many other filmmakers are trying to figure out how they do it, and they're just doing it. They're born with this knowledge, whether it's used from other films, but they just have a way. Which is why I always hate when people say, "Oh, he steals things." Like he knows how to 
do it. If it's so easy, why is no one else able to do it like what Kubrick and Tarantino are able to do? And, you know, obviously Scorsese as well. If it's so easy, how come no one else can do it? Because a lot of people try and they fail miserably at doing yeah. this. Or they do it so poorly, we know they're trying to be someone else. There's never a moment I'm watching a Tarantino film going, oh, he's just being Kubrick. Because Kubrick uses a whole different style, a whole different set of music, and Tarantino's gone with his, but they're doing the same dance, but they're mm -hmm. just doing the moves differently. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to get back to the music analogy that I had a little while ago, um, it's not, it's no different really than like, let's say Ace Frehley recording a solo for Kiss in the mid seventies. And all of a sudden there's a brief moment where you hear Jimmy Page and Ace was totally influenced by Jimmy Page. Now you're not saying, oh, he's ripping off Jimmy Page yeah. there. It's just like for that moment in that solo, here's the tool I can use. Yeah. And it's the same thing I think Tarantino does. He's got a very big toolbox or if you want to use a painting analogy, he's got a very big palette. Yes. And, you know, as a creative person, I will have an idea that happens and then I utilize the way somebody else executed something to help me get where I need to get. And I'm not saying I don't think people will appreciate it as much if they're not creative people. But I think if you think about it, there's nothing that we do in this world that isn't influenced by things that we've seen or heard. Nobody turns into the person they are developed in a vacuum. You're a direct <laughs> result of everything you've seen yes. and heard and every experience you've had and every conversation you had, even if you don't remember it. Yeah. And again, I think it's people that are able to sort of put those experiences, you know, into a special place that they can access. And again, I think that's what makes, you know, a filmmaker like Tarantino great. You know, there's tons of filmmakers that have huge palettes that they, they paint with. And I think, you know, kind of using the music analogy is is really a, a good way to help explain it as well as, you know, it's just there's a fine line between theft and homage, you know, and yeah. either way, you're getting across the idea that you need to get across. Yes. And at the yeah. same time, you might be sort of encouraging people to go back and discover that themselves. It's kind of cool. I, I so appreciate that, man. I so appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate it in music. I appreciate it in movies. Heck, I even appreciate it in foods. You know? yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Everything <laughs> is an influence. We all have food that our grandmothers have made and then our parents make it and they try to look different. That's why I say about Tarantino. He's a chef. He's got ingredients. He creates his own out of it. Are they other people's ingredients? Yes. But is he making their exact meal? No. Mm -hmm. So, like, even when we're talking about this scene about singing in the rain, did he use that as an influence for the ear-cutting scene in Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs? Of course he did. Are they the same? Not at all. Not even close. One singing, mm -hmm. one just happens to be dancing to it. They're doing completely different things to one another. Yeah, of course there's a reference there. But it's not the same fucking thing. And it could have very easily been referenced. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you could easily make it out to be that Mr. Blonde's character is a fan of A Clockwork Orange. And he wants the movie. And mm -hmm. he's a sadistic fuck. And he wants to cut someone up just like Alex detorts these people. You know, like, I'm with you. There's so many references. And it, it is a defined line. But the definition is, if you're stealing it, for me, it's a beat for beat thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the reference as an homage is a beat for beat thing because you're paying a real reverence to that moment. And you know it's a cinematic moment. If someone runs up the stairs and jumps up and down with their hands up... They are, yes, they're taking from Rocky, but they're paying it a real service of homage, like a nod, like we know how iconic this moment is, and we're using it in our film knowing that you know it's an iconic moment and you're going to know what this is. But we're, we want to reference this mm -hmm. exact moment. If someone makes, you know, I've seen a few comedies where like, you know, sometimes like someone jumps or whatever and someone else is in a bike, and if it goes up and past the moon, it's E.T. reference. We all know they're not even trying to hide, you know, sometimes people aren't trying to hide it because they, they do want you to know who mm -hmm. they're referencing and why they're referencing it. It's the people who try to yeah. hide it 
without us knowing. That's what it is. And, and Tarantino's never been one to hide it. He's never been like, no, I've, mm-hmm. I wasn't influenced by that. I don't know why, but there are so many detractors trying to take a shit on him. When, it'd be one thing if he was like, no, I've never, I've never referenced anything in my entire life. All these are my own ideas. Yeah, I think the other thing with Tarantino, though, is he just assumes that everybody... Knows this stuff like he does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it's not even like he's trying to you no. know, get one over on anybody. It's just like, I'm sorry, I thought we were all yes, starting from yes. the same point I thought point we were all here. having the same conversation here. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd watch three million movies in your lifetime. Apparently I was wrong. You, you didn't check these out. Those moments and then the one moment that is so iconic, but yet I was trying to think of, you know, very, very few. I mean, this is a moment that's hard to to replicate, and, I don't, and Tarantino hasn't. But the other moment, if you don't know the movie that we're talking about of A Clockwork Orange, you've seen the one where there's a gentleman with his eyes pried open. That's like, for me, I feel like that's the most iconic, besides the get-up of the Droogies. If you haven't seen that outfit, then you've seen Malcolm McDowell, even though you don't know who he is, with his eyes pried wide open as part of the treatment scene. And that's an iconic moment. That's one that's hard to rip off. And then anytime I've seen it, people are obviously, if you know that scene, like even my son, he saw me watching it, and he goes, I know I know this movie, but I know this scene. Like, I've seen that vision. That mm-hmm. is a very iconic shot of Alex, our hero, with his eyes pried wide open as he's being treated for violence and sexual aggression mm-hmm. in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. That scene is one of those moments where, it, as the viewer, and if anything, Tarantino or other people have taken, it's the tension and anxiety that's built in you because you feel for him. You see him getting the eye drops in and, and you, you want him to, you want it to stop for him and you know it can't. And you as the viewer are putting yourself in that person's stuff and you want it to stop. Mm-hmm. When you see a pride open, you're just like, I don't ever want that to happen to me. It's one of those yeah. moments where like we're tortured even though we're not the ones getting the torture happen to us. Now, before we jump in, there are two more things I just want to talk about real quick. Did you know that, well, you probably know this, I don't know what I'm asking, but when we go back to the old man, or the, the man who's now in a wheelchair who was injured two years earlier by the invasion and the rape of his wife, she eventually commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Do you know who his muscular bound no, is yeah, Darth, Darth Vader is? David Vader, Prowse, David the Prowse. guy who actually plays yeah. Darth Vader, yeah. plays Julian, yeah. He's jacked. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Well, you can see you can see why he ended up being Darth Vader. He picked that dude up by the neck for real in Star Wars. I think he may have actually killed that actor. He is mm-hmm. fucking jacked. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, is I don't know why it is, but very few English people have like a, a baritone voice like James Earl Jones. So when you hear them talk, it's in that higher pitched almost English accent, which throws you off when you see this big hulking man. You think he's going to have this big, deep voice and very threatening. And he's kind of like, good eye, sir. You know what I mean? Like it's higher pitched. Like your voice and your body, they don't, they don't coincide, which is why they use James Earl Jones' voice. And that isn't. Uh, again, I don't, I don't think people appreciate what Lucas no. did there. It's very rarely, rarely happened. I think one of the only other times in recent memory I can think about is that Steven Soderbergh movie Haywire with yes, uh, Gina Carano. Movie. That's not her voice in the movie. I did it's not her know voice. that. <laughs> she was uh, Soderbergh dubbed her. Well, uh, Lucas did that with uh, Darth Maul, uh, the actor who the, the yeah. stunt actor oh, yeah. plays uh-huh. Darth Maul. That's not his voice either, even though it's he only Ray says Park's three voice, lines. Yeah. But. yeah, it's something I don't think Lucas gets credit for, but at the same time, I don't think it's something that is done probably as much as it yeah. could be or should <laughs> yeah. be. Because um, sometimes people visually, they they fit the role, but their yeah. voice doesn't. It's pretty wild. Speaking of wild, but before we get to the influences, I don't know why I love this guy, but the English jail commander is a fucking treat. 
Maybe it's because I was in the military and I know some people who, you know, they are die in the wool, left, right, yes, sir, everything by the numbers kind of person. And the way he walks and the saluting and the yelling and everything. And then I love how when Alex is being turned over to the uh, the treatment facility, he does a little jump step like the, the commands. He's just a joy to watch. Like he, when he comes on screen yeah. for small moments, he is a joy to watch. Yeah. I think that's another thing that, that probably isn't overt, but like British films or British filmmakers, the their approach to comedy is yes. very different. And Again, like, you know, there's very subtle yes. British humor. And I think probably indirectly that's something that Tarantino picked up on is, you know, adding humor to sequences that might not be overtly there for certain audiences. Certain audiences might not laugh. But when you're, you know, the one or two people in the audience that is <laughs> yes. laughing, you know, that's who the, sure, yeah. that's who the exactly, jokes for, yep. you know. And I think that's one thing I really appreciate about, you know, the, the British approach to humor is, you know, this is the joke, you know, whether or not it lands is <laughs> yes, your problem. Yes, exactly. You know? <laughs> yes, 100% agree. Yes. And it's time for some of our influences. And now it's time to present the evidence. The first one, the one that smacks you in the face instantly. Number one. Needle drops. This film's use of music is fucking iconic. And it most definitely informed Tarantino's use of it in his career. I cannot, um, maybe someone will email me or hit me up on socials and tell me that, no, there's these other earlier films that do it. But this film, of all of Kubrick's films, and he does as brilliant a job with the use of classical music as Tarantino does later on with his use of the music that inspired him. The use of Beethoven and other mm -hmm. songs, and they hit perfectly every time. The Lone Ranger theme for a three-way sped-up scene. Fucking brilliant. Singing in the rain to beat someone up. Brilliant. I forget the name of the gentleman who redoes the Ninth Symphony, but when he first walks in, and it sounds almost like a pomp and circumstance kind of thing, but when he walks in to the record store, and he's in that purple suit, and you know, he's, and that's where he meets those girls, but that whole, just everything they do with the music is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. And there's no doubt in my mind that this informed him. If someone can find something that predates this film, that does it as well and show, and can tell me, then I will also give it credit. But with this information, watch A Clockwork Orange and listen to the mu amazing music mm -hmm. cues and not think Wow. And uh, by needle drops, I mean, this is he's using classical music. So, again, another thing is he uses classical music, which is really the basis of what score music is anyways, and mm -hmm. it uses his own score. So, these are all needle drops from Beethoven. He just needle dropped Beethoven a lot and brilliantly yeah. <laughs> does it. And they fit every every time he drops it in. It's just, It all works. It all works. It's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. When you listen to the Ninth Symphony as he's going through the treatment and you're watching, like, the imagery that they put over it is just unbelievable. And you're watching, like, the, the Auschwitz and these camps and the Germans, and you're just like, it fucks with your head. Like, it just does, you know? And it's amazing, mm -hmm. And which was the point. And so, for me, for sure, mm -hmm. I don't know, what, what is your opinion? Am I crazy or, or did I, am I just too much in love with these two films? No, no, I think you make a great point. And, again, it's it's not obvious, but if you examine it, a hundred percent, you know, it doesn't matter what the music is. It's the theory behind yeah. why it's being yeah. used. Yeah. And I mean, you saw the film again, especially when you go into it now looking for the references, knowing it's a reference, and then you see it. You know, it's one of those things like mm -hmm. when you watch the movie, you just go, man, it's a brilliant film. And then when you realize you go, oh, wow. I got to yeah. stop just giving him nothing but credit, but he may be the master of it, but I think this might be the godfather of it. Like, this is the guy who, you know, mm -hmm. maybe he took the, yeah, now nah, I am the king, now nah, I'm the master now. You know, last one I've met, I was a student. You know, mm -hmm. he was the student in Pulp Fiction, but he comes yeah, to master, yeah. but man, what, what Kubrick does in this yeah. film with it is, 
It's just beautiful. It's amazing. 100%, yeah. My other one. Number two. Is, believe it or not, the singing in the rain moment also helped to inspire, along with uh, another film that was an inspiration for Avery when I was writing it called Deliverance for the Rape Scene. Now, what I mean by that is there is a moment when, obviously, the song is being played. So the music from Comanche, we can we can tie it kind of in like that, but it's more the ball gag part, where they actually use these bouncing red balls as ball gags and put them in their mouth and tape them up. And it's just the way that they're doing the rape and the person's taped up that definitely helped influence. It influences the scene in Reservoir Dogs, but it also influences this scene along with the fear of the rape from deliverance of male-on-male rape and how men, we may not say it, but I know women have to deal with this threat every day of their life, which is mm-hmm. always uh, bothers me. And it's, I, I, can't, I can't fathom it. But men also fear being raped by other men. They, they just do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fear that is ingrained. I think everyone fears rape, but men pretend they don't, but we definitely fear being raped for sure. And mm-hmm. I think movies like Deliverance and this help it, but definitely Deliverance was the fear of the rape for males, but some of the scenery, some of the imagery with the ball gag, again, he went, boom. And if you see, you know, as soon as you see it, you're like, oh, yep, there they are. Yep, you go, ball gag, tape mm-hmm. it up. Obviously, I don't know if there were ball gags back then. You know what I mean? I don't know what they had in the 70s uh, S&M back then, but uh, yeah. you're feeling on that as tying two movies into this this one iconic scene. Yeah, I know. It's a beautiful connection. In a uh, sick way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, not saying anything good about rape. Not at all. But unfortunately, we mm-hmm. deal with it in both mm-hmm. these movies. A lot in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I, I think I think you know, talking about you know, sort of maintaining a, a level of discomfort for the for the viewer without again going over to the point where it's exploitive or or it's done things like that. I think that is is definitely part of that overall stew that you just talked about. Yeah, how do you make people uncomfortable? With these things and these references help inform that moment in their scene. Obviously, like, oh, how do I make this visually work? And then remember from this film, we're gonna add these elements, boom. Now, by no means do I think this film is the only one that does this. Number three. What struck me was the angle at which this shot was taken. And Tarantino's famous now for the trunk shot. That is his shot. It's a low angle shot. He does it in every film. We call it the trunk shot because originally he did it in the trunk shot in Reservoir Dogs. And he does it in this film as well, in Pulp Fiction. The reason I believe this is one of those moments that this helped across this trunk shot is in the police station when they're looking down at Alex and his uh, his lawyer or whatever this guy really is, his guardian, because he's a ne'er-do-well, is standing over and talking to him. The angle at which it's shot. Now, there's plenty of low shots throughout the history of film. It's just the angle is so extreme that when you see it, it feels like a Tarantino angle. So I'm not saying he hasn't seen other low angle shots. I just feel it's the angle at which this shot is taken. And he doesn't take it again in the rest of the film. There's no other moments in the rest mm-hmm. of the movie. But if you get a chance to relook at it many years from now, if you recover from this one, or you can fast forward, go to the police station after he's been arrested and he's on the ground and his guy comes in and is looking over. It's just the way they shoot up at him from Alex's point of view that instantly I was like, oh shit, that looks like the angle from the trunk. Like the actual angle. Low angle's been around for forever, but it's the way the camera's angled that informs the shot and Tarantino has that angle every time for his low angle shots and so when you see it it's more reminiscent of like when Django's doing the whipping and we're underneath them there's those moments when they're looking down at us for me I saw that I'm not saying by any Mm -hmm. means that it's the only one he's seen but I do feel it could have informed the level of the angle he wanted to shoot, the perspective he was trying to get from it, because it gives a very extreme low angle feel, just like his trunk shots do. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I think I think both movies 
um, this and uh, the Aldrich movie both contributed visually to what Terrence, his aesthetics. Yeah, uh-huh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, the language he he and his DPs are get, get together and talk about like, hey, I would like to let's just see if we can't frame this. This is the shot I would like to to re- replicate. You know, this is the look I would like to replicate. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he's. Not, I mean, <laughs> clearly, anyone can shoot a low angle shot and make it. It's just really how you angle it, the level of which you're having your person stand in front of the lens and how how you want them to be perceived. You know, when, when the when the audience is looking at him. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, the last one that I really saw, it's again the, the, the like we're talking about the setup, the shot. Number four. In Pulp Fiction, when Vincent is shooting up heroin, and he's making love, he's making love to heroin, and it's a sex scene, and we unzip the bag. There's a moment here, and it's it's brief, but the close-up of the syringe and the way they do the meds to give Alex a shot in the ass, again, has he seen other shots? Possibly. I don't know. I, you know, how many needles are in movies? You know, I don't know. But that shot, just the way it was shot, it reminded me instantly. And I wasn't looking for it at that moment because I forgot that he got, you know, when we were going into this, I knew some of the ones I was going to see. But it was one of the moments where I thought, I think this moment, the way that this is, the way they're shooting the close-up of this needle, the way that they want to show you how a needle's working, how this is working, I feel informed how he would then eventually show it. He went ahead and then turned that into basically a beautiful way of making a, a sex scene based on his love for heroin mm-hmm. and how he's undressing the needle, you know, taking it out of its pack, you know, all the subtle stuff they do. But it's just the way he shows the needle going in. It's just, there was just so much synergy when I saw mm-hmm. it again that it instantly made me write it down going, oh, I think that close-up definitely helped yeah. to maybe influence how he would eventually shoot it. Now, obviously, he shoots it differently because of the way, you know, I'm talking about it. But again, I don't, haven't watched enough films like he has. But I don't know, I, I'm, I'm even racking my brain, how many films, you know, do we get to see? Usually we see the president put the syringe in, they'll flick the needle, but how many are doing a close-up and making, mm-hmm. you know, making it the center of it? Yeah, you know, yeah. A lot of times you're trying not to make it the hero shot, so to speak. So yeah. those are the four I definitely saw. How about you, sir? Did you catch any that I've missed? No, no. Um, again, I think for me it was overall the tonality, mm-hmm. the ability to create that level of discomfort but not have it go to a point where um, it feels exploitive and just overall the the visual aesthetic yeah. is what I sort of took away. So hearing, uh, you know, the stuff that you captured and wrote down is, is kind of cool. And it definitely um, it helps me appreciate using this film as sort of a, a reference point when you're looking at influences. And it also helps influence Brezhnev Docs for sure. Mm-hmm. Even the moment when they walk out. And the droogies are walking in slow motion before he attacks his, his droogies. Even their slow motion walk has a bit of a, a nod that Tarantino would use with the opening of Reservoir Dogs, along with other, you know, but the, definitely that slow motion, the music helps inform certain things. So when you when you get to watch this, it's a masterpiece in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But it definitely helped to inform some things. So that'll bring me to the question, the final verdict question. And now it's time to read the verdict. Do you feel he was inspired by the things in this film, or did he blatantly rip them off? I think, again, it's an inspiration thing. Uh, you know, probably even more than Kiss Me Deadly, if you're looking at, you know, inspiration versus, you know, truly lifting something. Yeah, because there's something about when you watch a Tarantino film or a Scorsese film and a Kubrick film, it's the cinematography is what also stands out to you. And like even um, a lot of the Coen brothers, when they have Roger Deakins on with him, you just notice it. Like you can tell that you're... That- Don't discount don't discount Barry Sonnenfeld, though. No, uh, no, no, exactly. But <laughs> but you can you can tell that they're they're collaborating with someone who has a shared vision as far as they know how to help bring the director's vision. 
to life with their cameras. Like you can tell they're working in complete synergy to bring these amazing. I mean, sometimes you could just start a film and go without the titles and go, oh yeah, I know who this is. You know, they have a look. There's like you said, there's an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I can put Clockwork Orange and Paul Fix next to each other and they don't look alike. Mm-hmm. But there's a kindred spirit to them. No, oh, absolutely. In the case of A Clockwork Orange, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. And that'll bring us to your wrap-up questions. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I gave them to you, right? You know, yeah. even if you didn't read them, that's even better. You do them cold. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, not to pull back the curtain, but we were supposed to do this a week ago. We were. <laughs> yes, yes. Season two has had weird hiccups that yeah. season one didn't have, and I thought season one would. Uh, the episode that just came out right before this, two weeks earlier, since when this comes out, it'll be two weeks after, but the uh, hymno devotional that I recently put out, I had to re-record for a second time because I forgot to hit record on the guest audio. I just completely slipped my mind. I hadn't done that ever, never, and bam. Oof. Did it. So, yeah. yeah, you know, it's always fun to re record an episode, yeah. especially for the guests. Yeah. You know, it's even worse. Hey, by the way, I know you already gave me some time. I need it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, if I, if I, I definitely looked at these questions, but it was well right. over a week ago. <laughs> All right. So, our first, which of the two films that we covered did you enjoy more? And would you recommend both or only one or the other to my listeners? Um, I have to say, Purely because it was the first time watching it, I enjoyed uh, Kiss Me Deadly more. Okay, that's perfectly fair. It's understandable as well. Yeah, um, and I would 100% recommend both of these movies. Again, A Clockwork Orange is one of those films that if you're ever going to seriously talk about film with somebody, if you haven't seen this film, you can't seriously talk about film. <laughs> I, I would agree with you, yes. Again, you might not want to watch it for a while or ever again, but it's definitely worth watching and kiss me deadly if you're a tarantino fan and obviously you are if you're listening to this podcast there's enough going on there that you're going to appreciate it i think yes you know uh 50s film noir is just such a cool genre i Uh, love it yeah so um yeah no i give a, a recommend to both of them as do i yeah i agree with you obviously you know clockwork orange that's that's a masterpiece but kiss me deadly is that film that Without it, we don't have, like we said, the greatest MacGuffin, I feel, still going today. The, the one thing we don't know the answer to. One of those questions that we don't get an answer to in a film that has driven people to talk about it and guess about it and have their opinions of what it is and have all this rumor and conspiracy behind it. And it's really from this film. And if you're a fan of the Indiana Jones series, without this movie, I don't know that we get that great moment at the end of Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. You yeah. know, for those of us, especially young 80s, you know, Gen Xers, this this movie influences two major directors on things that, that happen in, in their films. Yeah. Did watching these two films open your eyes to new references and or influences within Tarantino films. Absolutely. Which one was the ones that got you the most? Like you were like, holy cow, I did not, you know, like, oh my, now I see it. I think probably more so uh, within, you know, Kiss Me Deadly. But our, having our discussion has sort of, yeah. you know, you know, made me appreciate, you know, the the subtle uh, stuff that, that, you know, happens in A Clockwork Orange as well. And lastly, did your opinion on Mr. Tarantino as a writer-director change after watching these films and learning how the sausage is made, so to speak? And if so, in what way? No, it it, it didn't. It didn't sour me on or, or spoil anything for me. Uh, again, one of the things I've always appreciated about Tarantino as a filmmaker is his usage of, you know, popular or unpopular 
uh, tropes, ideas, whatever you want to call it. It's part of what makes him a, the filmmaker that he is. So anytime I'm exposed to more of the stuff that uh, either directly or indirectly inspired him, a lot of the times it makes me appreciate him even more as a filmmaker. And that's a wrap on this month's episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Mr. Craig Cohen, musician, composer, and host of Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims for joining me again today. I had a fucking blast investigating whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced his magnum opus, Pulp Fiction. Now you can find the link to all of Craig's podcasts and music, as well as his socials, in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you would be so kind as to give this show a rating and a review, it will help more Tarantino fans like yourself find the podcast. Now, be sure to join me again in two weeks as Frank Hannon, co-host of the Bachata Talk podcast, joins me for our monthly hymnal devotional as we take a deep dive into the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.